0: podcast is sponsored in part by the Blue Ridge Institute for Theological Education and Birmingham Theological Seminary. For more information about these institutions, please visit their websites at bright-va.org, that's b-r-i-t-e-va.org, or bts.education. And now, here is Larger for Life, a podcast on the Westminster Larger Catechism.
1: Welcome back, everyone, to the Larger for Life podcast. It's good to have you back with us. Today, we're covering questions 18, 19, and 20 in the Westminster Larger Catechism. I'm joined, as always, by my intrepid co-hosts. We have the Right Reverend Sean Morris of Oak Ridge, Tennessee Covenant Presbyterian Church. Greetings and salutations, citizens. I make up words, too. Derek Bright from Aliceville, Alabama. Is, is with us. We're graced by his presence. Cheers. The Reverend in transition, Nick Bullock, coming from Stuttgart, soon to be the Yosemite Sam of South Texas Presbytery. Nick, how are you? Hey, y'all. Doing good. He dropped the Guten tag. I don't know if people noticed that. And Then we have Coach. We have the Coach Extraordinaire, both of Ecclesiology, uh, the fourth office of Coaching, and also a coach of Dillon Christian School. Is that correct, Matt? You know, I used to coach football at our school,
2: Dylan Christian, but I turned in my coaching whistle. I hear they're about to call me to uh, be the next coach for Clemson Football since we're struggling so bad. So oh, that's I that wanted other... to open up my want to open up my, you know horizons a bit. That's that other football team that has orange, I'm told. Hey, Tennessee has the gaudiest, ugliest orange I've ever seen in my life.
0: Tell Aaron Halbert I said so. I will. Although I mean it's you gotta be honest, it's it's kind of the orange and white. It's, like, it's evocative of a creamsicle, which is delicious, let's be honest.
1: I no comment. I'm well,
0: glad to
2: be
1: here, Spin. It's great to have you. And we will look forward to all of your takes. Uh, it's really nice that you brought the clipboard and the headset to try and direct the episode to make sure that we, we stay on course. We appreciate that. And so, as I said, we're dealing with questions 18, 19, and 20 today. In our last episode, we dealt with the work of creation generally. We dealt with the creation of angels, particularly, and also the creation of man in God's image, With question 17. And today's questions actually reflect that very same order. Remember, God executes his decrees in the works of creation, what we covered last week, and providence, what we're talking about this week. And the questions unfold in that same manner. We are going to talk about providence generally with question 18, which I'll read in a moment. We're going to deal with God's providence towards angels in question 19. And then in question 20, God's providence toward man in the estate in which he was created. So I'll kick us off here with question 18. What are God's works of providence? God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful preserving and governing all his creatures, ordering them, and all their actions to his own glory. Sean, do you have thoughts on this?
0: Oh, just a few, but let me start by saying that I I love—I mean, the setup question that you just highlighted um, about how God executes his decrees in creation and providence, and then the fact that the Catechism goes on to expound and explicate on that, it's wonderful, because it reminds us that this, the God of the Bible, the God whom we worship, the triune God of heaven, is not the God of deism. He didn't just create the universe, speak it into being, create the world, make man however powerfully. He didn't just wind up the clock and then step back and let things unfold. No, his decrees, his will that he has ordained is accomplished, yes, at the dawn of time and all things that he's spoken to being at creation, uh, but his sovereign will and his decrees continue to unfold because of his very, very present and active engagement in the course of world events and world history, even down to this very moment. Things happen because... Of God's providence, of His ordering things, of His superintending things, because of the, His working things out, if you like. Um, I think I mentioned this a few episodes ago. Providence is a—it's a word that um, has sort of fallen outside of Reformed circles. It's sort of fallen out of use in contemporary English-speaking usage, at least here in North America. I mean, people may have heard of the capital of Rhode Island, Providence, Rhode Island, but you know, what is providence? I mean. In in some in, in some older uh, works, providence would even be synonymous with God Himself. Now, sometimes you have the deist using the word providence, and we wouldn't want to use it the same way they would. But then there were other perfectly good Orthodox biblical Christians who would use providence with a capital P as a as a almost a stand in name for uh, the triune God of the Bible. But people sometimes don't know what to do with that word. What, what does it mean? And I think I mentioned this a few episodes ago when I will explain it to some of our young children in their Sunday school classes or catechism classes, Uh, it's not the most technically best way to say it, but the way things shake out, because God has said they're going to shake out this way, and God has controlled and ordained and is directing and governing how things shake out, that's a rough way uh, that we might uh, describe providence. And of course, the larger catechism here puts it much more eloquently, that His works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures. So yes, ourselves, but also ordering us and our actions to his own glory. So everything that happens happens because God has said so, I might tell my five-year-old. Everything that happens happens because God has ordained it to be. Everything that happens does not catch God by surprise. He's not uh, he's certainly not surprised by it. He's not caught off guard by it. He's not left in mystery wondering what's going to happen. And by the way, nothing happens that isn't to his own glory. Yes, even, even wicked and heinous things, God is somehow in his might and in his omnipotence and in his splendor able to subvert even wicked and heinous things and use them for his own glory, which we may want to ponder on that for a few moments, but that always boggles the mind that, like we talked about earlier, he is in no way the author of sin. And yet God is able to make sin his errand boy in his own way. He's able to subvert it and use it for his own glory. And this first question that we're thinking about this morning uh, helps us get our heads around that in some way.
1: I'm thankful that you talked about things shaking out and not shaking off, because there's a lot of Taylor Swift fanfare of late. And so I really appreciate you bringing us back to the doctrine of providence and not making a... uh, You know, some sort of redemptive historical connection to uh, everyone, meaning just Derek's favorite pop star. I thought that
2: Providence was just a name of like 25 to 30 percent of PCA churches. Is that not the case? There's actually a doctrine of Providence. It's
0: just not a PCA church name that we use. Well, it's actually every PCA church that has been planted by the PCA Church in Providence, Rhode Island. So they're just—they're all daughter churches from Providence, Rhode Island, and so that's why they take the name. You learn something new every day, I guess. Yeah, you know that's right.
2: But, uh, but Sean, you know, one of the points you made is very helpful here because immediately when we tackle this question, we cannot be deists, right? I mean, we, we've talked about this before in, in this podcast. Um, Dr. Kelly is always, you know, prominently known for saying that, you know, we're not reformed deists. We believe that our God is active within his creation. And so as he creates the heavens and the earth, he's also active in the heavens and the earth by his uh, preserving and governing all of his Creatures, ordering them and all of their actions to His own glory, right? So, um, you know, the the purpose of of this question that helps us understand God's providence is the fact that our God doesn't create and just walk away and step back, but that He's actually working within, above, and beyond uh what he has naturally placed into uh, order we you know we mentioned this a little bit when we were talking about miracles a few episodes ago that God has ordered his creation but at any time he sees fit because he is sovereign and he's working for his glory he can go above or even against those ordinary means in which he has uh, also established so that he can preserve and govern all of his uh, creatures and so, um, despite my, you know, my joke that fell slightly flat, uh, just a few minutes ago, there is a doctrine of providence that is very helpful for the Christian to understand. That joke was flat like the earth.
0: There it is. Oh boy.
2: Oh, the world is round.
1: round. So it's but, God's works of providence, his holy, wise, powerful preserving. Again, coming back to the very character of God, the intention of God behind all things, because that is where so many people go off the rails. They think God's toying with them. They think that God doesn't uh, love them or is, is capricious, cares not for them, aloof. But we see that his providence extends not just to the lives of believers, but to the lives even of unbelievers. He says, governing all his creatures, ordering them in all their actions to his own glory. So we think of King Cyrus, We think of Nebuchadnezzar, we think of those places in scripture where it speaks of God directing the hearts of men, the hearts of the kings, they're like rivers in his hands directing them in whichever way he so wills. We see him hardening the heart of Pharaoh, and ultimately, for what purpose? He says that, I've raised you up so that the world will see my glory, will see my power as God uses these vessels destined for wrath, and we talked about this in previous weeks a couple episodes ago. But it's ultimately unto the exaltation of his glorious justice, his almighty power, and that grace and mercy that he shows upon people, let's be perfectly honest, who are equally unworthy to have his providence work out and uh, shake out well for them. Um, yeah, there's this question was among i mean it's question five in the shorter catechism so of course it's among the first that you're going to memorize but this question is is so helpful i think because we want to interpret providence according to our doctrine of of god we do not want to interpret providence according to our experience of our fallen creaturely vantage point and say well because this is how i feel Mm -hmm. this is how my heart is exegeted this really hard situation in which i find myself therefore i'm going to think of god differently or if we take the culture's understanding of god that he's sort of this divine cheerleader or benevolent grandfather and that if hard things are happening to us well that must happen outside of his providence because my god only wants good things to happen to me ever and always but as we'll see when we talk about um you know god's providence seen in the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise God that his hand is not altogether withdrawn, and praise God that he is sovereign even over the hard things, because the worst thing in the world tended to be the best and the only good news uh, that you and I have grounded our hope and our faith in.
0: Yeah, that's that's a great point, Spin. All things are providential. All things are providential. Now, not all things are pleasant by our creaturely experience of them, but all things are providential. I think I mentioned this a few episodes ago, but it's worth repeating. Nick and I had a uh, professor in seminary who was keen to remind us of that, that, you know, people mean well. They're not trying to be irreverent. In fact, they're trying to be reverent, but oftentimes we'll speak of things when they go favorably and we'll say, ah, that's providential. You know, I needed to have a tough conversation with Mr. Smith this week, and I was dreading Calling him on the phone, but I was out shopping and I bumped into him at the grocery store. Oh, how that was that was providential! I needed to talk to you. Now I see you face to face, and uh, now I was able to have that conversation. It wasn't that providential. Well, it's providential even when it's unpleasant. Uh, sometimes the the Puritans and some of the hymn writers would refer to those as a dark providence or a frowning providence. Um, you know, the the death of a spouse, the death of a child, um, the loss of a job. These things are hard. And agonizing, but they are nevertheless providential because they're ordained and ordered by uh, our all-powerful God. Um, they are unpleasant to experience, of course, but that they are nevertheless providential—they don't catch our God uh, off guard in any way. So it's it's maybe a a pedantic or nitpicky thing, but it is good for us to remember that even though all things are not pleasant, all things are providential. What is the hymn where it says "Behind a
1: frowning providence"? he hides a smiling face. The bud may taste bitter, but sweet will be the flower. And I do love that Westminster, even as it's talking about what God does, it brings us back to to who he is, which helps us to understand what he's doing and why. That's and right. That's, that's, William,
0: that's William Cooper's um, God Moves in a Mysterious Way. Um, it's spelled like Cowper, but it's, it's pronounced Cooper. And uh, and was such such wonderful theology there too that yeah the, the providence is frowning, but towards his people, God's countenance toward us in Christ is a is a blessed one.
2: You know, even in um, you know hard providences of correction, you know it it carries some uh, blissful weight because it not only reminds us. In our correction, that we're we're sons of God, um, you know we 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 expect our we expect our you know us as parents uh, our children to be disciplined when they are uh, in the wrong or disobedient, uh, but it proves to them that they're our child, right? So even in the hard providences of uh, correction, we have to understand that there's a. There's a good that is supposed to come from uh, that. That there is a working towards our sanctification. That God is uh, removing uh, a, a temptation from us, uh, removing a sin from us. And so in His in His providence, He has uh, He has well ordered our lives so that we might grow in Christ likeness um, as well. And so that's that's always something helpful to understand that the correction of the Lord. Uh, he will not spare the rod from his children. Um, he will correct us uh, so that he might uh, push us to to live further for his uh, glory. Uh, that he will mold us and make us look more like uh, his son, our Savior Jesus.
0: I think sometimes providence is, is it's good to it's it's one of those words where it gets thrown around a lot in in reformed categories. You know. Sovereignty and providence, sovereignty of God, providence of God. Those are kind of our our catchphrases, and sometimes if we don't outright despise it, you know, what's the expression that familiarity breeds indifference or familiarity can breed despising? And I suppose that's true to some degree that these are familiar categories or familiar theological terminology in the Reformed and Presbyterian world, so we can sometimes throw those out there without dwelling much on them. Yeah, providence of God, yep, yep, moving on, but it's good for us to linger over the doctrine of God's providence as Reformed people because, as we've mentioned before, sometimes, sometimes, not always, but sometimes in our well-founded caution or or a desire to be guarded against the excesses that we see in some wings of Christianity, like charismatic excesses or Pentecostal excesses, we swing the pendulum too far the other direction and run toward being reformed deists, as, as has already been mentioned. We don't want to do that. Uh, we are unabashedly and unembarrassed to say that we are supernaturalists, we are supernaturalists. God is a supernatural God who is actively involved in the world. Uh, he is about the business of ordering and governing all things. And so it's not just set things in motion and then step back. God said, no, 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 no. So there's a there's a healthy biblical way to talk about that supernatural element of our faith, of the activity of God in space, time, and history without running into the excesses of, of the errors that our charismatic brethren will make. And the doctrine, the Reformed and Presbyterian doctrine, the biblical doctrine, we would say, of providence helps us do that, I think.
2: Yeah, you know, Sean, one of the things that um, I want to hit on before we start moving into God's works of providence and the angels and men is, and you, and you said it, that nothing catches our God by surprise, right? And so a lot of people, when you start talking to them about the, the fall of Adam and Eve into sin, They'll say that, you know, God created the heavens and the earth. God created man and woman. Uh, and then when they fall into the temptation of Satan and they sin, that God is caught off guard and has to almost move to a plan B, which is the saving of the elect, right? Uh, he has to figure out a way within himself to uh, save his people. And, and that's that's just so far off base from Scripture, as it teaches us the providence of God, uh, that he's working, uh, even, uh, through the sins of the people to accomplish his good, to accomplish his will. Uh, and then, you know, immediately after the fall in Genesis three fifteen, we have that proclamation of the hope of the gospel, that one was going to come wow. to crush the head of the, the serpent. And, And, you know, if we did not believe in the providence of God, and and Voss brings this out in his commentary on the larger catechism, if we didn't believe in the providence of God, then we could not hold a firm uh, confidence in the prophecies coming to pass. So providentially, God promises a Savior in Genesis 3. Uh, and then, of course, through his covenants, through his promises throughout the Old Testament, he is leading us to Jesus, who is the yes and amen of all of his promises. Without the providence of God, we couldn't have the yes and amen affirmation of of what the Lord is going to do in uh, in 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 His creation, in His people, uh, in this reestablishment of of unhindered communion with Himself, and, and so. You know, this isn't a this isn't a doctrine that that can you know just be you know academic or heady for, for us Presbyterians. This is a doctrine that that carries a lot of practical weight when we begin to talk about uh, the Lord and our salvation, even the promises that we hold to in the New Testament that uh, Jesus is coming again to usher in the new heavens and new earth, if, if the Lord was not providentially working, we would have no assurances of his promises. Um, and so, you know, as we uh, think about God's providence, we think about it in two ways, the catechism says. Uh, and, and I guess that I can just lead us right into to question 19, if that would be okay, gents. That God works in his providence towards the angels. That's question 19. And here's what the catechism says. That God by his providence uh, permitted some of the angels willfully and irrecoverably uh, to fall into sin and damnation, limiting and ordering that and all their sins to his own glory and establish the rest in holiness and happiness, employing them all. At his pleasure, in the administrations of his power, mercy, and justice. I do love that language because we, you know, just talked about this last episode—the employing of his angels, uh, but also the uh, the damnation of those who have those angels that have uh, fallen. Nick, you want to? Uh, kind of take a stab at this question 19 and
3: and speak to uh, God's providence towards the angels? You know, I think one of the things that's being distinguished here is that um, that ultimately God is in all things. That's already been said a thousand times uh, just in this one uh, episode, but but specifically he's in the hard things. He's even in the falls. Uh, He doesn't make a, a, you know, an angel or a person to fall into sin. He, he certainly doesn't approve of it. He doesn't delight in the rebellious heart. And the way that they speak about this is God's providence permitting uh, his, his permissiveness uh, of the angels to willfully and irrecoverably fall. Um, that's a very important thing to, to understand, because what we're being told is we don't get to be sovereign even in our own sin. Uh, that's the attempt of sin to take God, snatch him off of his throne, take his, his uh, crown and put it on our own heads, uh, sin says, I will be my own God. Uh, remember the lie of Satan. Do this, and you will be like God. Uh, the retort of Adam should have been, I already am like God. I'm in his image and after his likeness. Um, but but what we're being told here is simply this. Uh, even, those, even those rebellions uh, are under the sovereignty of God. Those things are even within the providence of God uh, as he permits uh, sin to occur uh, willfully and as as they say so clearly here, irrecoverably, uh, the language of reprobation uh, there uh, in in question nineteen regarding the angels. So it's an important thing to say, uh, an important thing to see as well. Uh, why do I think so? Um, I've I've met and had debates with, and even have a friend who's an atheist, uh, and having conversations with him, um, he's foul mouthed. Um, he he delights in it. He loves to say. Terrible things to curse God in front of Christians and in front of other believing people um, of of any religion, really, to try to get a rise out of them. And I I was talking to him one time and I said, you know, why do you do this? And he said, well, it's my opportunity to take a stab at God. I get to I get to be the one that controls the moment and do whatever I want. And that's just simply and patently not true. Um, Even if the Lord permits you to do it, you're not the one driving things. You're not the one in control of all. So. Yeah, it's it's an, an interesting thing. It's a correction that I think some evangelical Christians will struggle with, but I do think it's biblical. So,
0: yeah, and not unlike what some of the things we were talking about just in the previous episode about the creation of angels, um, we don't need to rehash that again. But it, there, we we live in an age of sentiment. Either I see it, two errors: one, either an overemphasis or an over sentimentalizing of angels, or just a an unfortunate neglect of it, and so the catechism here helps us get that biblical perspective. I think rightly ordered to not to not too quickly forget about the angels and 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 run off into some sort of quasi reformed deism or something like that. That uh, angels were were created and they fell into sin and damnation as well as you know man doing it. You know, people people don't forget about man falling into sin, and we'll talk about that here in just a few moments. But you know the guard of Eden, Adam and Eve. The temptation by Satan, eating of the forbidden fruit. We we think of that, you know, man was created with the potential to do well and do right, but he sinned and fell into a cursed state of damnation. Um, But I think sometimes, at least in my experience, we tend to overlook that reality that that happened to angels as well, that there are elect and fallen angels, and so even just the inclusion of this question here in the Catechism is just a helpful reminder um, that it happened to them too, Uh, and it's this doctrine, this teaching, uh, is an important one, even if it's not central, 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 you know, of the utmost centrality of our theology. It still is an important aspect of our theology that we would do well to bear in mind. And this question tells us as well that the number
1: of the elect angels and the number of the reprobate angels that we would call now demons, that number is fixed. So there's not going to be another fall, there's not going to be a Satan 2.0, as it were. Rather, the full number of the elect angels. And it's a particular number, right? Just as there's a particular number whom God has chosen from before the foundations of the world that he's going to save out of the mass of sinful humanity. So there are elect angels, and then there are fallen angels under the dominion of Satan doing his will and his work. And as Sean said, we're going to see that this plays out in, uh, God's dealing uh, with man, that there's a a fixed number of persons elected unto salvation, others who uh, fall away, and that number is fixed. So I'm preaching through the gospel of John right now, and I I just can't help, I'm preaching actually John chapter 10 next week, and I'm going devotionally through John 17, where he just talks about those whom you have given me, uh, those whom you foreknew, uh, those that you have called by name, and... You know, we can have a pretty good idea about how things will shake out in our lives if we're a particularly regimented person or really good with planning things. We can predict outcomes, but God knows the outcome. And I mean, I'm I'm ready to go to question twenty and to hear what Derek has to say about God's providence toward man. Is are can we can we switch gears to twenty? I'll allow it. Spin. Okay. Well. To give, you know, because I know Derek is actually uh, just, he needs to let the ink dry on his uh, 1,000-page commentary on this very question. I'll read part of 20 and then just kick it over to Derek. What was the providence of God toward man in the estate in which he was created? The providence of God toward man in the estate in which he was created was the placing him in paradise, appointing him to dress it, giving him liberty to eat of the fruit of the earth, putting the creatures under his dominion, and ordaining marriage for his help, affording him communion with himself, instituting the Sabbath. I'll just read all of it. Entering into a covenant of life with him upon condition of personal, perfect, and perpetual obedience of which the tree of life was a pledge and forbidding to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil upon the pain of death. So this this question is just mammoth. And so, uh, Derek, pick a piece. What What jumps out at you? What you know what do, what do you think is important for us <laughs> Just just put you on the spot what what's none the most it. important thing in this question none of it uh, we can just toss this question out altogether.
4: Um, wow. no I uh, uh yeah it, it really is a, a mammoth of a of a question and there is a lot there and I feel like really even each clause could be uh, a, an episode by itself but one thing I would just say is that, and, and this really is connected to things that have already been said. I'm, I'm basically restating what's already been said, but applying it to this question that many Christians, I think have a very, again, deistic view of, of the way God works in the world where, um, you know, he's just rolled the dice and he, he created the world. He um, created Adam and Eve. And then um, he just took his hands off the wheel or let them do whatever um, he wanted to do, you know, whatever they wanted to do. And it was just, he had nothing to do with it. In fact, I have an elder who was telling me that he went to a funeral one time and, and, uh, somebody had died unexpectedly. And, the preacher got up there and said, you know, God didn't have anything to do with this, you know? And, and I think we, we do that. Um, I think people have a tendency to do that. Even when talking about what happened with Adam in the garden, you know, God didn't, he didn't have anything to do with, um, you know, the, uh, what happened in the garden, you know, it just, he created them and he created them good and um, rolled the dice. And this is what happened. But really what this catechism teaches us and really what scripture teaches us is that God in his providence ordained all the things that happen in there. And again, you could pick any one of these things. I would say one of the things that stands out to me is I love the the section and ordaining marriage for his help that marriage between Adam and Eve. And then ultimately for us is, um, is something that is um, for our good. It's ordained for our good. It's um, you could even push it further and say that your spouse is a gift and work of God's providence in your life brought about for your good and his glory that God in eternity past, obviously he, decrees all things but he as he's working in the world executing his decrees providentially moved and worked in and did all of these things in order for you and your spouse to come together and to be married and to to live and and to glorify him and so what it's such a gift that he has given and we find that in in adam and eve in the garden you know he created them and and ordained that they be together and for a purpose that she would be a helpmeet to him and, um, and that they would love and glorify God. And, um, so, anyways, I, I'm kind of ranting now, but I, I would just say that, um, things like marriage is such a blessing of God's providence that, um, and, and we think, you know, so often we fail to give God credit for things like that for meeting your spouse and, for getting married and and what a blessing of providence that is. Uh, we tend to think, well, of course, God did something of this massive cosmic scale, but our daily lives, things like marriage and work and the Sabbath and all this thing, you know, that's, uh, that's just, that's uh, us, just, that's just natural law grinding away and, you know, things happening. That's, that's just not the case.
2: You know, one of the things that the Psalmist David, I can't remember exactly what Psalm it is, but I mean, you think about, I mean, you make a great point, Derek. You think about just the the smallest of details in our daily life. David says, "I woke up this morning because your hand sustained me through the night." You know, I mean, you think about the the powerful statement that is that that our feet hit the ground in the morning, every breath we take uh, and breathe in through our lungs, all of that is God providentially working in our lives and. And there is a, a lack of thankfulness that exists within the Christian, I think, because we we don't uh, give the Lord credit for His activity uh, in in our being sustained by His hand with every breath that we take. Um, you know, it is it is a, a helpful reminder, I think, that God has given us uh, good things like marriage, like the air we breathe, like good night's rest, um, coffee in the mornings when our feet hit the ground. He's he's given us all these things in His providence for uh, our good. Um, and, and just thinking about what He's given us for our good, you know, the, the catechism here says that even the instituting of the Sabbath day was was God providentially working for our good. I mean, you know, we we think about Something like marriage being so perverted by our culture and our society around us, uh, but think about how you know just how the church today doesn't honor the Sabbath as they ought. Don't give the Lord thanks for the Sabbath day as they ought. It, you know, here in the in the Bible Belt, the the Sabbath day, the Lord's day might be perceived as an obligation rather than an honor. Um, And and so, you know, it's, it's one of those things that the the Sabbath day is a good thing and we should be thankful for it. And we should know that God is providentially working in, in even the, the way that our week is established and ordered so that we might have a day of rest, a day of worship. Um, And so, I, you know i always think back when i'm discussing the sabbath the the old puritan uh comment a market day for the soul right um and, and so it uh you know we we need to be aware of what the lord is doing and even even the finest of details by giving us a sabbath day by giving us you know good godly uh wives and and hopefully respectful and, and orderly homes, uh with kiddos and
4: I'm just and, uh, thankful that Matt that I'm a uh, a non testament or a non commandment Christian rather than a ten
1: commandment because I don't I don't obey the Sabbath. Only nine commandments matter. Well, this is what's funny, is that that one really is kind of pulled out. Uh people are willing to say that the law of God was written on Adam and Eve's heart, but you know there's there's no morning and evening language at the end of the seventh day, and so every day is Sabbath day, and it just it gets a little bit weird. Uh, we would all, uh, I think, just avowedly say that we are uh, Sabbath Sabbath day fans, Sabbath day appreciators, and um, but Matt, you talked about this being a day of rest, and it's and it's an honor to participate in this, and this is something that we say that this is a general act of providence. That Notice what the question does. It's interesting because in the Shorter Catechism, it makes a distinction. Question 11 in the Shorter Catechism asks, what are God's works of providence? But then in question 12, it asks this, what special act of providence did God exercise toward man in the estate wherein he was created? So in question 20 here, we have an enumeration of the Ordinary providences that all of God's image bearers were created to enjoy or to exercise, uh, to eat the liberty of the fruit of the earth. God has given us a fruitful earth. That's good news. Uh, He causes the rain to fall upon the just and the unjust. Further, we have putting creatures under dominion. uh, Even in a fallen world, we have dominion over the creatures. Uh, Planet of the apes, thank goodness, has not happened. I don't think it's going to happen. Uh, We also have marriage. Marriage is not just for believers, it's for all of God's uh, image bearers, it's a creation ordinance, we call it, and then affording communion with himself. Clearly, uh, all mankind does not know God and does not enjoy this communion, but don't we have every single week the free offer of the gospel, that all you who are weary and heavy laden come to me and I will give you rest? Uh, We invite people to come and to commune with God and to do what they were designed to do. And that's pictured for us uh, most specially on the Sabbath day. But then the question transition and says, entering into a covenant of life with him upon condition of personal, perfect, and perpetual obedience. So there's the special act of providence, Mm -hmm. that special act of providence wherein God says, as he said later to Abraham, I will be your blessedness and your reward that Luke 17 says look we were made by God and so we should obey him just because he made us right we're unprofitable servants at the end of the day the the clay doesn't get to say to the you know to the potter i'm going to do whatever i want thank you very much like no the, the clay does what it was designed to do but in this covenant of life that God extended to Adam which he did not have to he could have just said you're going to exist you're going to obey and that's it but that he would have confirmed Adam in that original righteousness with which he was born, that he would cause him to live in that beautiful Garden of Eden, and that that Garden of Eden would, I'll say, expand and grow and cover the whole face of the earth, you know, picturing for us the new heavens, new earth that you and I are longing for. That was a really special act of God's providence, something that he didn't have to do. And there's I will say even a greater act of God's providence that we'll see uh, next time, which is uh, the covenant of grace that He extends, having fallen from that first covenant of works. You know, all of us fell in and sinned with Adam, but uh, you know God, by His most holy, wise, uh, and powerful providence, has extended to us a covenant of grace.
0: Yeah, there's a couple of things that uh, that jump out just here. I mean, one you you had mentioned it's as if they pull out one of the Ten Commandments and and highlighting the Sabbath there, and there there is that. But even though this question is more specifically on the doctrine of providence, it's also touching on the doctrine of creation. And don't you love how just the Catechism frames it of enumerating what we would call those three creation ordinances of labor, marriage, and the Sabbath, of how these things are binding all men in all times, even pre-fall, before sin even entered into the equation. Um, And, it highlights it right here. Of, of here it was that creation, marriage, uh, labor, and Sabbath. These things were established uh, at, at the dawn of all time uh, to be kept in perpetuity. And so it's 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 getting at that there for us. And the the other thing that just strikes me, you have already sort of touched on it, spin. But it just as you're reading through these things, it's almost like someone's in the background asking, "How blessed was Adam?" And the Catechism begins to answer it in this almost sort of lyrical doxological quality with each attribute getting more and more amplified. How blessed was Adam? And then you start reading it. Well, he was placed in paradise. He was appointed to dress it. God gave him liberty to eat of the fruit of the earth. He put creatures under his dominion. He ordained marriage to help him. He gave him communion with himself. He instituted the Sabbath, and each one keeps getting more and more and more. And then he entered into a covenant of life with him. It's, you're almost drawn to the end of like, how in the world could Adam have botched it? Oh my goodness, what a blessed state he was put in! Look how much God did for him. Look how gracious, look how kind God was to him. How in the world could you have botched this, Adam? But then we realize we're drawn to, we're we're, we're driven rather to conviction because we realize every one of us could just as well have done it ourselves, uh, given the Uh, given the fickle nature of sinful hearts. I had that thought, and then my friend Derek looked like he was leaning in to say something as well, so let me turn it over to him. He
3: was like a tiger
0: poised to strike. (laughs) Um, Hashtag Tiger King.
4: So uh, all I was going to really say is that the doctrine of providence really is something that um, Christians can take comfort in Overall, And I'm speaking of providence overall, and I know that question 20 is more focused on the estate in which man was created. However, just speaking broadly about the doctrine of God's providence, that the fact that um, God is at work in the world and in the lives of his people, ordering all things for their good. Um, you know, sometimes we look at providence or we try to read God's providence, but we do it from the wrong perspective. We try to do it as prophets looking down or looking through time and saying this is what God's going to do or this is what makes sense to us or this is what we think should happen. And then if things don't go our way, it, it rocks our faith. John Flavel says that providence uh, is like Hebrew. It can only be read backwards. And that's a good word that, um, uh, you know, we can only look back at the end of an episode, the end of a year, the end of whatever, and see all the events that God has orchestrated. And when we do that, it actually builds up our faith. It causes us to want to worship and glorify God Um, it gives us assurance rather than doing it in the opposite direction and saying, um, having these expectations of what you think should happen. And then when it doesn't happen, we think God is just not, um, you know, not involved, not interested, not at work. And, um, so I would just encourage our listeners and and all Christians to really ponder God's providence His working in the world, um, all the things that he's probably doing that you have no idea about, but he is working all things for your good, and uh, that's such an um, a, a such a comforting thing to think that you know. For example, um, I'm sitting here in my study at the church, speaking into a microphone, but who knows what could be going on in another state, another country, another. Um, you know, it, in someone else's church office or whatever, that there's an event happening that God is working in that somehow will lead to my good. Um, I just got really distracted. Sorry, I I was waving and I wasn't paying attention. I was off in my off in a zone. I was like, oh God. I think
1: I think Sean uh, the the listeners can't see this, but I think that Sean finally booted Nick off the island. Yeah, this is. Wow. Uh, this is the plot twist of the episode. Uh, you know, Survivor meets Ecclesiology. I was not expecting this.
0: Well, I, yeah. I don't know. It's That's what ha- I think what we saw was him being deported by the German government right in front of our very eyes. I think that was the exact moment of he and his family's departure from Germany, and now they're over the Atlantic right now. We, we just saw them get swept out of the country. Bye-bye. Zach, or... Uh... <laughs> You know, Matt's
1: going to say that he was raptured uh, because he's still a closeted Pentecostal. It's possible. It's possible. It, I've seen a lot of rapture
2: talk and rapture uh, gifts uh, the past past couple of days. So, my favorite one is the seal going up the little tube. Have y'all
0: seen that one?
1: I have to send one. it to you in our text message group. You you uh, will I have, have to do that.
0: I have not seen that.
1: Can we talk about these two trees for a little bit? Because I think there's a lot of questions that people might have about these trees. Yes, I was Uh, hoping we
0: would get to that. Yeah,
1: We don't know that it was an apple. The Bible nowhere says that. So I, I always just leave it as the generic fruit. But the terms of this, this covenant of works that we're going to talk about at some point, obviously when we talk about the fall of Adam and... The consequences of that fall that extend to you and me. But the covenant of works, God required him to not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil upon the pain of death. And had he uh, continued in that, uh, he would have been free thereafter to eat of the tree of life indefinitely uh, as confirmation or as a sign of his being confirmed in that blessed state of sonship uh, forever. So this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, what's going on there? Like, is this a poison apple and that's why he wasn't able to eat of it. And the day that he ate of it, he would surely die. Or maybe I could ask it this way. Why did God choose that tree to be the test of his obedience? Matt, what do you, you are a goober.
2: I'm just, Laughing at Derek's face,
1: it's really easy. But I tried to maintain my composure uh, throughout the episode. You know, just looking at him. But
2: you're more, you're more ho- holy than I am. I am more more holy sanctified. Than
1: you. Does anybody want to take a stab at that on yes, why I that did. was the test of obedience, Derek? Derek's well, ready. I'm gonna lean heavily upon Gerhard's boss
4: here, who has a great little, uh, uh, riding on. Um, the trees in the garden that these are sacramental trees, that they are signs and seals of the covenant that these particular trees were not, I'm of the belief. And I think, I think that I could make this case from, from scripture. These particular trees didn't have, they weren't glowing. They weren't, they didn't look uh, different, but they were, ordinary trees set aside for particular holy purposes pointing to a greater reality right so the tree of knowledge of uh, of good and evil um, pointed to um, the uh, need for uh, not for man to reach out and grasp uh, this for themselves but to rely upon, god and his revelation um and trust him by faith they had to live by faith in the garden and they needed to rely upon him for that same thing with the tree of life although i believe the tree of life hypothetically had adam obeyed and and passed the probationary period he would have been granted to eat of the tree of life and um but that pointed to a greater reality of Um, God, who is the author and sustainer of life. So these were sacramental trees. And so really it, the question, I think, which is a fair question, but the question that often is asked, well, why are these trees in the garden in the first place? You know, why, why have this probationary period? Well, you know, if you have a robust view of the covenant and of covenant signs and seals and of sacraments, that's not, that's not even a question you ask. It's like, um, it, it, it just makes, uh, it makes sense. You go, of course, there's something in the garden that is set apart wholly to point to the covenant relationship of the Lord God. Of course, there's something there pointing to a greater reality because that's what God does. And that's what God has done through history. He did it first in the garden. And then that picks up, right? um with circumcision Passover um, baptism in the Lord's Supper it all of these ordinary things that point to this greater reality and um, of course Gerhard's Voss even pushes that further and and talks about um, the two trees between um, uh, on either side of Christ um, but that that's my uh, you know just to jump in and get it kicked off that's where I'm at with it
1: well, I found it really helpful. Uh, Your explanation was fantastic. You know, John Calhoun in his uh, book, *Treatise on the Law and the Gospel, distinguishes very helpfully uh, between what are called positive commands and natural commands. So when we talk about natural commands, uh, particularly the moral law, we say that this is grounded in the nature of God. These are commanded by virtue of who God is. And positive commands are according to God's decision. He is no less holy where he have to decided that there would be a different tree by which Adam and Eve's obedience would be tested. Uh, So there's nothing intrinsically, as you said so well, there's nothing intrinsically glowing or special about these trees. And that brings to mind the question of, well, then why when... Um, God was wanting to cast Adam and Eve out of the garden, did he not want them to eat of the tree of life, right? Because, you know, they'd fallen in sin. I think that that's a picture of it would have confirmed them in their fallen state, that just in the same way that that tree was to be feasted upon Adam indefinitely as a sign of his being confirmed in that righteousness and enjoying all the privileges of his adoption as God's son, had he eaten of that tree of life, uh, you know, While he was in his sin, he would have remained confirmed in that fallen state. And so, um, no, not confirmed in the Roman Catholic way, Matt Adams. You you stop. You leave me alone. But these trees are sacramental, and God could have chosen another way. So they're positive. And Calhoun has this great uh, one-liner where he says, These things, like the Ten Commandments, are good. They're holy, right, and good. Therefore, they are commanded. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil, this test of their obedience, these were commanded. Therefore, they are holy, just, and good. Right? You see that difference between, between the two. And so uh, that's the significance of the trees. There's no significance in and of themselves, but they're insignificant only insofar as these are the means that God chose to signify and to symbolize uh, the necessity of trusting God. For revelation and for wisdom and goodness and guidance, and the rewards that would come when we uh, look to God alone instead of self-reliance.
0: No, that's good. I'm, I'm so glad that, that Derek said what he said, and, and, Spin, you said what you said as well, uh, because that, that's where my mind was going as well. When, when you read the language there in the Catechism book, uh, of which the Tree of Life was a pledge, you know, sometimes you'll hear it even today, but certainly with older writers, some of the Puritans and so forth, they'll speak of the New Covenant sacraments as a token and a pledge, uh, particularly with reference to the Lord's Supper. And so uh, even though the Catechism doesn't specifically you know, employ the adjective sacramental at this point, I think that our minds go there, and as Derek highlighted, as he was leaning on Voss, that there is a, a sacramental quality to these things, that token and pledge. And and I love how how Derek said it, and I don't know if he did it on purpose, I suspect that he did, but he said, there's nothing particularly magical or glowing about this tree, it just looks rather common and ordinary, but God had employed it for a holy purpose. Well, that's the same language we will often use, particularly in our uh, administering of the Lord's Supper, Here's this ordinary common bread. Here's this ordinary common cup of wine. Nothing, nothing special per se about the bread. Nothing special per se about the chalice of wine. And yet God is we, has instituted to use these common elements for a holy usage and a holy and sacramental purpose. There's great parallels there uh, between the Lord's supper elements and these sacramental trees, so to speak, uh, that that the Lord is employing there in paradise in the garden of eden and of course careful readers of scripture will know speaking of that tree of life where does that tree of life make a re make an appearance later on right at the end of the bible in the book of revelation the tree and by the way there's even more of it there it's on either side of the river and it's there right. for the healing of nations and those the Lord. who
4: conquer are granted the right to eat of it right to eat of
0: it and that's and like you said not confirmed to be living in perpetuity in that state of cursedness and sinfulness but this time when they eat of it. To partake of it and be confirmed in that state of of paradise and bliss and eternity and life with the Lord.
4: Yeah, the fruit that Adam and Eve ate. I mean, it literally turned into the body and blood of Jesus. Whoa! <laughs>
3: <Just
4: kidding.
0: laughs> I gosh, I
4: you
2: just guess. heard the gong ring. <laughs> you know,
0: it was that red, delicious apple, right? That grew there in the Middle East in, you know in many, the Garden of Eden.
1: Do you know how many people and, have tried? The- style have tried to tell me that my mac that my macintosh computer is that's a sign of the forbidden fruit
4: actually i think technically it is he 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 said the guy whoever started apple said that
1: the, well, the, the, you know that's I I put a Jimi Hendrix sticker on the front so that his face is illumined and his just his glorious fro um, is just flowing out there
0: from. Sure it's pretty I'm cool. I'm going to have such a fun time editing this episode. No, this isn't going to get I'm leaving this all in. Are you kidding? No, I that the logo oh, the, app, the Apple logo is is deliberately meant to be a, a reference to the edenic cursed fruit. I thought yeah, there was an urban I read- legend yeah, I did
4: not read this from some weird dispensationalist whatever side. Okay, it's, but I, uh, but yes, originally um, it, it's my understanding, um, unless unless the article I read, you know, a long time ago, was deliberately lying and misquoting, which is of course possible. Um, there is a con- supposed to be a connection there. You know, he wasn't a believer, obviously, but it was the idea of eating of the. That what people think was an apple, um, of knowledge, you know? Um, so that's where, so yes, there's a, that's a legitimate thing, I believe.
0: Okay. Interesting. I, yeah. I and thought now that was, I thought all that an these
2: dispensational legend. youth camps are going to be burning their iPhones at the next summer camp. Then Give them have. to me. I'll dispose of them.
1: Don't that's worry. The- yeah, that's, right.
2: <laughs> that's right. That's right. You it. know, it's the, it's the great joke of the, the old classic rock, uh albums that you had to burn once you got saved was is that ACDC Back in Black? I'll take that one. Uh you know, that's Nights why we should Satan all listen to the service. Kiss. That's why Can I- you take
3: me Hi-ya. higher? young
1: mate? Oh Sean, if you're going to edit anything, please edit that one out. It's a good thing that you know I'm not in the church choir. Um, Sean, we have a giveaway today. Very excited for those faithful few that hung on this entire time and heard uh matt adams voice and mine singing creed could you please let them know that one lucky person that one providentially ordained person who there you get, go. we don't
2: believe in luck
0: that's right that's right we have um yeah, for those of you who have persevered to the end There is an opportunity for you to win a wonderful giveaway. Our friends over at Crown and Covenant Publishing House, which is the official publishing arm of the RPCNA denomination, the Reformed Presbyterian Church in North America, one of our sister NAPARC denominations, they're... Uh, publishing house Crown and Covenant, has recently produced these lovely volumes. I don't know why I'm holding it up to the camera. No one can see it. But anyway, it's this lovely little devotional edition of the Westminster Larger Catechism, and they have given us several copies that we can use as giveaways here on our podcast. So it's a it's a cloth-bound, it's cloth-overboard volume. It is just the catechism questions. There's no devotional thoughts um, included in it, but it does have the proof texts. There is a uh, a very nice introduction written by Reverend Nathan Eshelman, one of the hosts of the Jerusalem Chamber podcast there. And then it's just the questions, one page per question of all 196 questions of the larger catechism, question and answer, with the proof text there mentioned at the bottom. So this would make, even if you don't win a copy, uh, they're very affordable. They might make a very nice gift for a high school grad, a college grad, a seminary grad, uh, a gift for uh, some member of your church. Just a, a great I wouldn't say it's quite pocket-sized edition. Although if you have particularly large pockets, it might fit in just nice. But cargo you know, shorts,
2: OPC cargo shorts, is Let's that what call... we're
0: talking about? Uh, or Todd Pruitt cargo shorts? You don't even have to go to our friends in the OPC. Old, old old Major Pastor Todd can can just lock and load one of these bad boys into his cargo short pockets. But Isn't in any glorious case, it, it's a it's a very nice very nice sort of a – I don't. Would you guys say like a like a a mint green color here on it, but uh, very nice gift. Get one for yourself if you don't win or get one to give away uh, as a nice graduation present or, or something like that. So if you will, having listened to this episode, if you would be so willing as to like it, share it on Facebook, uh, repost it, I guess is the new terminology now on The platform formerly known as Twitter, it'll always be Twitter in my heart. I can't speak for anybody else, but say what you want, Elon Musk. I'm not going to call it X. It will always be Twitter in my heart. So if you want to like and retweet this on Twitter, repost it on that which was formerly known as Twitter, share it on Facebook. You'll be entered into a drawing to win one of these lovely Westminster Larger Catechism uh, gift books. And we'll have not just this week, but we'll have future episodes where we give away uh, subsequent copies as well.
4: Also, I just looked it up. Apparently, it is not related to Adam and Eve, the apple logo. It has nothing to do with that. Um, So we're all safe. You owe me an apology.
2: So we we went on a five minute conspiracy theory for nothing.
4: (laughs) It wasn't for anything, man. We we I mean we went deep diving. This is what people pay money for. This is why they came.
2: Wait, time out. Are y'all withholding money from me?
0: Wait, y'all are getting Well, that's paid? all for this week. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> and so with that, whether you eat an apple or a fig, a banana or a protein bar, whether or not you choose to share this episode to be entered into the giveaway, whether you're a PC user or a Mac user, we hope that you have been edified and encouraged as we've thought along about the doctrine of God's providence today, thinking through questions 18, 19, and 20 of the Westminster Larger Catechism, and we look forward to having you join us next time as we continue on in our study through the Westminster Larger Catechism. Until then, cheers and goodbye. You have been listening to Larger for Life, a podcast on the Westminster Larger Catechism brought to you by the Blue Ridge Institute and Birmingham Theological Seminary. For more information about this podcast, please visit our website on Podbean at largerforlife.podbean.com, where you can subscribe to the show in the podcast platform of your choice and browse past episodes. You can also follow us on Twitter or Facebook On Twitter, you can follow us at Larger for Life Podcast. And on Facebook, you can follow us at Facebook.com slash Larger for Life. Be sure to tune in next time and join us again at Larger for Life.